Hi, this is David Lozell Martin. I'm here today to read excerpts from uh, my 12th novel, Our American King, which is being published today, September 11th, 2007. Um, I grew up on a farm in southern Illinois. I worked in steel mills and went into the Air Force and held journalism jobs in Chicago, San Francisco, Washington, and operated working farms in West Virginia and Tennessee. Um, Our American King supposes a time in America when an apocalyptic calamity has led to half the population starving to death. The government, meanwhile, has abandoned just about everyone except the top tenth of one percent of the wealthiest Americans who have retreated to compounds protected by private armies and federal troops. From this lawless land arises a man um, of such charismatic power that the people turn their backs on the representative democracy that failed them and embrace this alpha male, Taza, as their king. Today I'm going to read uh, three excerpts from the book. The first begins at the beginning of the book. As a social calamity dismantled the United States, our richest citizens, the top tenth of one percent, purchased and seized massive quantities of every imaginable commodity, trainload after trainload of fuel oil and pharmaceuticals, generators and gin, coffee and clothes, and sugar and flour and spices, herds of cattle and flocks of chickens, armaments and munitions, sufficient for the rest of their lives and their children's lives and their children's children's lives. That was the goal, enough for three generations. Then to guard what they had amassed, the very rich hired private armies and made deals with generals to gain the protection of troops, but not Marines. Early in the calamity, when negotiators for the wealthy arrived in North Carolina, coveting those 156,000 acres as sanctuary and storehouse and potential golf courses for the very rich, they were met by hand-lettered signs hung everywhere. Devil dogs not for sale. The top tenth of one percent of our wealthiest Americans needed defensible places to live while they and their children and grandchildren fed off what they had pillaged. Across America, they moved on to army bases and airfields. They took over vast cattle ranches in Texas and Montana, and they settled in gated communities throughout the Southwest. In New York, billionaires made a fortress of Montauk at the end of Long Island. The Montauk rich hired the U.S. Navy to guard against oil barrel rafts overcrowded with desperate families. To halt these craft before they could land, and then tow them into the open arms of the sea where the sacrament of starvation could be completed in privacy. While abed in Fortress Montauk, the very rich awakened from a recurring dream of glass breaking, of bare feet padding hard and fast across imported tile, of midnight and machete and the stench of the very poor standing over your bed. The second excerpt I'm going to read is um, from the, the the book's narrator is uh, Mary and her husband John, 
and they are starving to death in a suburb of Washington, D.C. They walk into the nation's capital. John is convinced the king exists, but he's delirious with starvation. And this is a scene when they first meet this man who would be king. He swings the upside-down body until the loop of rope catches around a fence, Pike. Then he lets the body hang down while he turns its face toward the fence. I hang them the way they spoke their words, he tells us, upside down and backwards. John and I join the cheering, even though we are ignorant of the context. Who is hanging there from the White House fence? And how had they died? And if killed, why? He speaks to us, answering questions he hasn't been asked, walking the line of hanging bodies. This traitor was elected to Congress, a poor man representing working families. But after he became rich, he could be counted on to vote against unions. He has betrayed us for the last time. As we cheer again, I glance at John's face, radiant. This one's a senator, born to wealth, the man continues. He was given every privilege, yet he would not open his pockets to help his citizens who were starving. The king walks from the fence to come among us, people everywhere reaching out to touch something of him, a sleeve, an arm, his hand. He returns to the bodies on the ground and nudges one errant arm, French cuffed. We have lobbyists with their fists full of dollars. We have the wealthy who never gave anything back. This speech is not loud, no broad gestures. It's more like he's talking intimately to a small group of us. He grabs the one who's French cuffed and lifts him to hang him by the rope around his ankles, upside down from the White House fence. We cheer. He comes among us again. When I can see him up close, it's like falling in love. His head seems large, his face heavy. He has even features. I enjoy looking at him, and my empty stomach feels the full excitement of his presence. The mood among us is as if anything can happen, miracles or fistfights. His complexion is dark, but not like mine, more tan than blood. His thick hair, fingered straight back, is black. John was right, lucky guess or not. The man's eyes are green, green like seawater is green on those days when it looks like green paint. When the man passes closest to us, he doesn't notice or speak to John or me. His scent is strong, not body odor, but something distinctive. I'm not repulsed by a smell. In fact, I felt a twinge of something long dormant. Speaking now to people who have circled close around, the man says, We have measured their offenses, and they have been weighed guilty by the hundredweight and by the penny pound. At a time when leaders were needed most, they abandoned us and looked after the power brokers and money holders. Where are our real leaders? Not among those hanging from the fence and 10,000 more like them, haughty and high and mighty. Where are the people's leaders? Where are our poor kings with stars in their eyes? At the mention of kings, John squeezes my hand, but it proves to be a passing reference. Instead of great chiefs with fiery visions, we were given small men on fat accounts. We were given men and women who know nothing of us, who instead of spinning stories of our greatness, they spun the truth to suit themselves. 
Where are the presidents and ministers who leave public service impoverished because they were rivers to their people? No wonder we hang them upside down and backwards. They are America's shame, and we don't want to see their faces. We repeatedly cheer this voice. He moves away and says things down the line that cause others to cheer as wildly as we had. This is the most exciting moment of my life, of John's too. John is trying to drag me through the crowds to get closer to the king when again, here he is right in front of us, except this time he sees us, looking right at, right at us. He stops everything and takes John and me by our stick arms, moving us gently out of the crowd, leading us back to the fence, and then turning us to face the people. Do you see this, he asks, his voice soaring. These are Americans, starving to death. Millions across America have already died. There was enough to go around, but everything was confiscated by our leaders, by the rich, the power class. They hold up on military bases and on islands and on peninsulas, and for a while they're in the White House, staying well-fed while this is what happened to America. Again he indicated us, putting powerful arms around our bony shoulders. This is what they want for us, America. This is the plan those hanging from the fence had for us. We are better than this. John and I are horrified to be paraded as a terrible fate in store for the rest of them, yet we are thrilled to be the center of this great man's attention. The people shout, Taza! Taza! Hearing it clearly now for the first time, John whispers that name, repeats it, rolls Taza in his mouth like something hard and sweet. The man strides back and forth in front of the people, exalting them and smiling and holding out both arms to figuratively embrace his people. He is bold, magical, dangerous, commanding, magnificent. People love him. John and I love him. We love Taza. He is such a natural king that we assume this love for him and hope he loves us back and are thrilled when he says he does. Americans never felt our worth the true weight of our own worth, not until this man spoke to us. And the final excerpt I'm going to read is from the end of the book when the narrator Mary, from a perspective of 50 years, is asked which did she prefer living under, a kingdom or a democracy? I've lived in a democracy and I've lived in a kingdom, and at their cores, like all governments, they are both corrupt. We form them as necessary evils to protect us against other corrupt governments. But governments are not the people, and they never have the people's best interests at heart. They have the government's best interests at heart. Regardless of what protections we put in place, a Bill of Rights, or Magna Carta, governments will oppress the people, censor the people, exploit the people. Governments do not trust the people. Governments are contemptuous of the people. Governments build concentration camps and cathedrals. The people plant gardens. We feed and breed, we nurse and harvest. And if you want advice from an old woman, I say put your trust and love in the people, never a government. 
That's not what you can do for your country. That's what you can do to save and promote and protect the people, even if that requires treason of king or country. Because the people, your family, friends, neighbors, we are the conspiracy that has survived a million years. And we are alive today not because of governments, but in spite of governments. We endure. We are the people. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit www.kqed.org slash writer's block. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.